I have the pleasure of inviting Dr. Chloe Orkin, who's come all the way from the United Kingdom. She's a professor of HIV medicine at the Queen Mary University of London in, in London. And she'll speak to us in new and investigational drugs for HIV treatment and prevention. And I'd encourage you to ask her some of the questions you just asked me in addition to, to all the others. So there you are. Right. Thank you so much for the warm introduction. And it's an absolute joy and a pleasure to be here with you today. And thanks so much for the invitation to be here. So that was a fantastic talk from uh, Professor Abrams and a wonderful discussion. And I'm sincerely hoping you're not going to direct any of those questions to me. Um, So I'm going to talk about new and investigational drugs for HIV treatment and prevention. And here are my financial relationships. So what I'm hoping is by the end of the session, you'll be able to describe the nearest antiretroviral agents in use for the treatment of HIV and describe the antiretrovirals in development and also the key findings from the phase three cavitegravir development programs, both for treatment and prep and some of the key outcomes for the lenacapavir development program. So I'm going to start with what's both new and available. And what I'll talk about here is for heavily treatment experienced people, the use of entry inhibitors, because this is something that's quite new and quite important. And then I will talk about the use of cavitegravir or piverine for virally suppressed people. So the heavily treatment experienced moniker is something that um, is, it's a very important group and many new drugs are actually first tested in this group of people. So we often get the very first clues as to the efficacy of a drug uh, within this group, but there's no universally accepted definition of heavily treatment experienced people. And this is a problem because many different definitions have been used. And sometimes the definitions are based on multi-drug resistance, and sometimes they're based on the level of treatment experience. But because the definition varies, it can be quite difficult to compare and understand the outcomes in different trials and really uh, get a hold on this. And I think this is a problem. So regarding entry inhibitors, there's been quite a flurry of activity in terms of entry inhibitors lately. And I think we tend to sometimes think of these drugs as, you know, very, very similar, but actually there are multiple mechanisms of action and the different drugs work at very different points in the the life cycle. So if we consider the pre-attachment inhibitor, fostemsevir, it blocks interactions between GP120 and the CD4 receptor. However, in contrast, the post-attachment inhibitor ibilizumab attaches to the CD4 receptor away from the GP120 CD4 interaction. And this induces conformational changes that inhibit entry. Then we've got um, CCR5 antagonists we can see in the, in the C&D panels, and this is both Maraviroc, which we know very well, and Leronlimab, which is a slightly in trouble uh, drug at the moment which inhibits GP120 and CCR5 interactions. 
And then finally, in the last panel, we have fusion inhibitors. And this is, of course, the very familiar enbuvitide or fusion drug, um, but also the new and up-and-coming albuveratide, which is in the same class. So what we see is quite a wide array of mechanisms of action. And this provides some opportunities for maximizing the use of these drugs. So it opens the door for potentially combining these drugs in heavily treatment experienced people with few treatment options. However, there isn't a lot of data, there aren't a lot of data around synergistic activity. Um, although these things have been uh, demonstrated in vitro, what we really need are clinical trials to evaluate this more in vivo to, to create better options. So I'm going to move to the other uh, sort of new treatment option, and this is for virally suppressed people. And I am, of course, talking about long-acting cabotegravir rupivirine in suppressed switch. So this is a drug. Well, this is a complete regimen. And when it's given every two monthly, this amounts to six treatments a year. And this really revolutionizes the treatment of people living with HIV. Um, and sort of removes the burden of, of daily oral therapy. And what you can see is the different guideline recommendations for the use of this drug. And you can see that for us in Europe, we can only prescribe it two monthly, but in other settings, you have the option of using it monthly or two monthly. But the drug is by no means universally available. And we do really have a situation of resource deprived settings being completely unable to access this drug. And this is a huge inequity. And we can see that this is the sort of inequity that we've now got used to seeing in COVID. And it's so important that we, we try to fight against as a community. So Elaine has very elegantly already described the data, but what I'll say is that um, the recommendations and the guideline recommendations for the use of cabotegravir or pivirine have been underpinned by three pivotal phase three trials. Firstly, the ATLAS and the FLARE studies, which compared cabotegravir or pivirine monthly, I seem to have lost my slides. Oh, there we go. Okay. Which compare cabotegravir or pivirine monthly to oral comparator. Um, and then uh, the alternative was the Atlas 2M study, which compared two monthly to monthly cabotegravir or And what we've seen against the oral comparator is data out to week 124 in the FLARE study. And what we've seen now is data out to 152 weeks in the Atlas 2M study. So quite a, some longevity of data now. And the findings are very consistent. The adverse event rate is around 2%. Uh, these are pretty, pretty much mild to moderate in severity. And in terms of injection site reactions, these really, really do reduce over time significantly with the worst ones being with the loading dose. And what happens with these drugs is at these injection site reactions, they tend to last about median of three days and pretty much gone by seven days. So when we think about the uh, confirmed virological failure rates, you can see that this is very low. It ranges between 1 and 1, 1 to 1.6%. And this amounts to 23 uh, cases out of 1,431 uh, people who experienced virological failure. And you can see that the rate for the QA arm was 2.7% versus 1% in the Q4 arm in the Atlas 2M study. Now, this may look like a significant difference, but it's really important to recognize that um, this is not the only factor. And there's been a repeat of the multivariable analysis uh, for these uh, confirmed virological uh, cases. 
And it's been uh, repeated with some additional factors included, both in terms of baseline factors and other pharmacokinetic factors. And this will be presented, it's been submitted, will be presented this year at some at a meeting, hopefully. So in terms of resistance, as Elaine has explained, when people do experience virological failure, people tend to fail uh, with uh, two-class resistance in the main uh, with cavitegravir or piverine. Interesting data from the Flare Week 124 uh, analysis uh, actually showed that it was possible to give the drug with or without the oral lead-in. And what happened is the people in the Flare study who weren't given cabotegravirapivirine to start with were given the option of receiving it after week 96. And they were given a further option based on very, very few uh, problematic events during the oral lead-in. The FDA allowed uh, the, the investigators and the patients to choose uh, whether they would receive the oral lead-in or not. And what happened, although this was a post hoc analysis, the arms were very balanced and there were no differences in safety, no differences in pharmacokinetics and no differences in efficacy. So on this basis, it has actually been accepted as, as an option in terms of licensing. In terms of preference, nine out of 10 people prefer the long-acting treatment. And sometimes people say, well, you know, that's all very well. These are people who chose to go into these studies. And what I say is, well, we're certainly not going to be putting people with a gun to their heads, insisting on long-acting treatments. If people want to have long-acting treatments, what the study shows is that they were still wanting to have them by the end of the trial. And that sounds like good news to me. So in terms of PrEP, Elaine has covered this in great detail, so I'll skip over it. Um, but just to say that uh, we, we did see superiority of cavitegravir versus oral PrEP. And you can see that this was particularly evident in the 084 study uh, for women. Once again, the injection site reactions were very similar to the treatment studies. And the adverse events were similar to daily oral PrEP. And there was a consistent preference for two-monthly dosing. So implementation, as was pointed out, is really... Um, the heart of the matter now. How are we going to do this? How will we operationalize this? So there have been two key feasibility studies, uh, implementation Stein studies, one in the US, which is the customized trial, and one in the, UK, uh, one in the EU, which is the carousel trial. And these have basically been evaluating uh, feasibility and acceptability uh, of cavitegravir piverine in terms of both healthcare professionals and the participants. And they've been evaluating the barriers and facilitators to success. So what we see in these trials very consistently is the top barriers as considered by the healthcare professionals. So at baseline, the healthcare professionals were most concerned about participant ability to keep their appointments and concomitantly the risk of resistance. They were also concerned about staffing levels and having enough staff to perform the injections. They're also worried about patient soreness. And I think that any of us who've been in the field for, for, for a long period of time are really, really aware of what happened uh, with T20 or Fusion, and we all have those nightmare memories. But I think it's important to recognize that this, wasn't, this isn't being given twice a day. This is being given every two months or every month. So it's a very different situation. So by month five, what we see is that these barriers and these concerns had significantly reduced in terms of healthcare professionals. So what we're seeing is that 
although people found it quite concerning at the beginning, five months into the treatment, these fears were actually being allayed rather than exacerbated. So this is a positive uh, finding. And in total, these were actually reduced by 43%. So I would say that um, this is a, this is a, a positive uh, step. And I think that there are a lot of remaining questions. And this is no, but this is, these two trials by no means answer all of the questions. I think that one of the most important and acute questions is how to monitor for these drugs, both in treatment and PrEP, and where to do this. Is the right place the clinic? Is it a pharmacy? Is it a community center? Or is it in primary care? And I'm really excited because we're just about to start a trial in the UK, which I'm leading. It's a multi-site trial, uh, which we've developed through my university. And we are going to be giving the drug for the first six months in the clinic. And then in the second six months, each site is going to be able to elect uh, where they think is the best place to deliver the trial uh, in their community site. So we'll be using a community center, so Positive East, which is where our patients, um, it's, it's sort of their sort of community network. We'll be going there to deliver it. Some people have chosen pharmacies. Other people have chosen um, GP surgeries. Some people have chosen homes. So we'll see how that goes. And we're also uh, in this trial, which is called the Alana study, uh, going to be uh, taking a very active approach to recruitment. And we would like to challenge the dogma that it's difficult to recruit women. So we have decided to do what we've decided, what we're calling an anti-racist and anti-sexist study. And we've set a target on, well, we've set a cap on the recruitment of male participants of 50%. And we've also set a cap on the recruitment of white participants at 50%. And the trial will be managed, uh, comp- the recruitment will be competitive. And I've told the sites that I will cap them. Um, if they do not recruit to target. And I, I just feel that we have to commit to this and we have to find a way of doing this. And it's enough, you know, we, every single conference, somebody stands up and, you know, bangs their gavel and talks about doing this. And the only way to do it is to do it. And if we don't succeed, at least we will have tried and we'll understand why we haven't succeeded and can try and operationalize from there. We've also decided to recruit at least 30% people over the age of 50, because I think um, we, we always tend to recruit very young people. Um, so I guess another question is who the ideal recipient of long-acting therapy is, and who do we think is going to derive the most benefit? So we may be very keen to offer it to people who are experiencing stigma. We may want to offer it to our adolescent patients, people who are experiencing homelessness, people with cognitive impairment who may, who may benefit from directly observed therapy. But it's important to remember also that the recipients have different preferences. So what we know is that people's preferences are very nuanced. So even if we consider men who have sex with men, what we know is that people in relationships don't mind having a visible method of, of PrEP or treatment. They're happy with the patch or an implant, something that can be seen. But people not in relationships actually wanted something that were invisible. And what we know is that women, particularly young women, overwhelm, overwhelmingly have preferred long-acting reversible contraception. And they clearly preferred, um, they had excellent outcomes in the 084 study in terms of PrEP. But again, we mustn't generalize. 
It's important to understand that people may have different preferences and we can't just stereotype and pigeonhole an entire group of people. And we must remember our biases. We have a very ignoble history in medicine of pressuring poor women and women of color into long-acting reversible contraception. And it's very important we don't repeat the mistakes of the past with our long-acting injectable therapies. So what will the future hold? Well, we have a lot of wonderful modalities for drug delivery. And you can see them here. And you know that we are already using long-acting long injectables and we have a vaginal ring, which is the piverine ring. We also have a lot of wonderful classes in development and you can see that there are antiretrovirals being delivered and developed at almost every conceivable point in the HIV life cycle. And this is wonderful to see. And you can see that there's a rich pipeline of compounds that actually come under each of these headings. And I won't belabor each of these points right now in terms of these compounds, but what I will also show you is that these compounds are being paired according to whether they're being used for treatment or whether they're being used for prevention. And you can see some of these drugs are being developed for oral administration. Some of these drugs are being developed as injectables for treatment. Some of the drugs are being developed both for, for treatment and prevention. I'm referring to lenacapavir specifically here. Some drugs are being developed as implants and patches. And then in terms of the topical treatments and the IVR treatments, what you can see is that it's really, really exciting. We actually are at the point now of multi-preventive technologies and it, people are actually actively developing drugs for PrEP and in terms of intravaginal rings, which also contain contraceptives. And actually things are also being developed in terms of uh, STI treatments embedded in there as well. So we might actually get to a point where we can offer a multimodal intervention, which is suitable uh, on a number of different levels. That's very exciting. But unfortunately, other than long-acting cabotegravir or piverine, we don't have what we need at the moment in terms of treatment, because what we need is all very well having wonderful compounds and amazing modalities, but what we actually need is two compounds, which are compatible in terms of side effects, in terms of viral synergy, and in terms of frequency of administration. So why am I being so negative? The reason I'm being negative is because the Islatrovir program is currently either under, un, under full or partial hold in terms of all of the trials. And this is because of dose-related immunological concerns within the treatment program, particularly at the highest doses, and particularly when com combined with the NNRTI, which was also in development, MK8507. And some of these drops are really quite remarkable. Um, the, the, the mean was about 30% drop, but there were people that dropped about 50%. Uh, and in the PrEP program, this was also uh, seen, and, but in this case, we weren't measuring CD4 counts, but total lymphocytes counts, and these also dropped significantly in concerningly. Now, this has not been, collab uh, this has not been um, correlated with any clinical problems. There was no other cell line involvement, no lymphopenia or leukopenia, no difference in infection events, no difference in rates of COVID. And when reviewing the entire safety review across the whole program, there were no findings of concern. But we've heard no news. This all started to happen in November, December, and we've heard absolutely not a peep since then. So it is concerning. And I think what's important to say is that it's clearly a dose-related thing, which means it affects a long-acting program a lot more than the oral program. And actually, in the oral program, the phase three trials, the, the effects were very minimal and only occurred in one of the two studies.
So I think if you were to ask me, I would say that the oral program for West Latvia may well continue, but the long-acting program is certainly under threat. And I think in terms of a mechanism, uh, it's an adenosine analog, and we have seen something similar uh, when uh, TDF and DDI were combined back in the day. So this may be related to adenosine, although this hasn't been something which has formally been ported. So moving to lenacapavir, this is a first-in-class capsid inhibitor with multi-stage activity in both the early and late flight cycle. It's a small molecule active at picomolar doses, and it has no cross-resistance with already approved drugs, can be administered orally or subcutaneously, supports six-monthly dosing, and there's also uh, activity in, in the SHIV model. So as I said to you earlier, these drugs are often tested first in highly treatment experienced people, and this is the Capella study. So what happened in the Capella study is that the, the, the primary endpoint was a 0.5 log, log drop in the first 14 days. So lenacapavir was given with the uh, optimized backbone versus placebo, and based on success here, um, both of the cohorts went on to receive lenacapavir subcutaneously with an optimized backbone. And we've now seen data out to week 52, which is one of the secondary endpoints, we saw at Croy that in this cohort, 83% uh, of people had undetectable viral loads less than 50 and even higher, less than uh, 200. In terms of resistance, there was no new cases of resistance beyond week 26, but there were four participants who developed resistance, and this was the M66I. Two of these people were on functional monotherapy and two of them were not adherent. Three, three resuppressed without resistance to the optimized backbone. The injection site reactions were mild and tend to disappear quickly, and there was one discontinuation due to ISRs. So lenacapavir was well tolerated. There were no adverse events leading to discontinuation, and there were no serious adverse events to lenacapavir. So good outcomes here. There's a smaller study, an earlier phase study, and this is, look, this is the Calibrate study. This is for people on their first line of therapy. So what you can see is that uh, this was for people with CD4 counts greater than 200 who had never had treatment before and without hepatitis B or C. And what happened is that the comparator group was for Bictegravir, FTC, and TAF. So that was the comparator. And then what you see is that there were a number of lenacapavir arms. There were two injectable six-monthly arms, and there was one oral arm. And what happened in the two injectable arms is FTAF was given with lenacapavir, and at week 28, they moved on to two-drug to, to two therapy. Uh, and then you can see in the oral dose, there was FTAF plus lenacapavir. So what you see here is the outcomes, and you see up to week 54, excellent outcomes for green. For Bactegravir, it was 92%, with slightly lower for the lenacapavir arms. And there were two cases of resistance on the lenacapavir arms, and both developed a Q67H. And one person also developed NRTI mutations. Both of them had poor adherence. But the, the concentrations of lenacapavir were in the target range, and they did resuppress on another therapy. But what this says to me is had they had two injectable agents, these, these two people would not have experienced biological failure, which is why it's so important uh, to develop a partner agent. 
terms of the injection site reactions, this was very consistent with the Capella study, mild adverse events in terms of injection site reactions, but more discontinuations in the first line therapy than in the uh, highly treatment experienced people. Once again, no serious adverse events and no grade three to four lab events. And here we're finding, about, finding out about the adverse events. This was predominantly nausea and headache. Now, interestingly, this drug, as I said to you, has activity in the SHIV model, and uh, there are two very large trials going on in PrEP. And these are the PURPOSE 1 and 2 studies. This is a very diverse group. The first one is adolescent girls and young women compared against oral PrEP. And the second one is men, transgender men, transgender women uh, who have sex with men. And you'll see here that the um, actual study design here is quite interesting. Because we'll all remember with the DISCOVER trial comparing uh, FTAF versus uh, FTDF, that because uh, the oral preps work so well, it's very, very hard to show a difference. And the study almost wasn't able to get a reading. So based on that, very clever ethicists, epidemiologists and clinicians uh, and statisticians have come together to develop a new study design. And this is called a counterfactual analysis. And what will happen here is that recency assays will be done at baseline to identify incident infections in the screening population. And this will be used as a comparator to the actual outcomes during the trial. So it's sort of BHIV uh, versus, uh, versus the LENARM. So just to show you that there is still a pipeline, you can see that there are maturation inhibitors, which, are, which actually affect uh, binding in the late life cycle. There are two candidates here. Um, and the first candidate is a uh, 254. This is an oral candidate being developed as a fixed, uh, fixed dose combination with dolutegravir and separately. And there are a number of trials which are due to start uh, all being well. And then there's also 934, which is an injectable drug, which potentially could be a longer acting drug, uh, potentially two monthly or less frequently, and maybe a partner for cabotegravir. Now, we've already talked about broadly neutralizing antibodies. Elaine has already mentioned these. Um, but it's important to recognize that in terms of treatment, these can be given, uh, if you use the mutated version, uh, six-monthly as infusions. And, of course, infusions are complicated to deliver. We've all learned a lot about VNABs, particularly during COVID. And what we do understand is we need uh, combinations and we need tri-specific VNABs. There are trials underway at the moment using BNABs both with lenacapavir for treatment and also with cabotegravir. So there are attempts to partner with BNABs in terms of treatment. And what we have seen also in terms of the PrEP sphere is the AMP studies. Uh, and this was looking at VRCO1 in the short-acting uh, BNAB. Uh, and what was found, unfortunately, is it didn't work to prevent HIV acquisition. And this was largely due to the fact that it didn't work against the different clades, the clade C virus. So I've mentioned the dipiverine ring, and this is an, a wonderful, uh, wonderful addition because it's actually the first female controlled choice. Um, and it's an additional choice, according to the WHO, for women at substantial risk as, a, as part of combination prevention package. And it's been shown to reduce uh, incidence by 30% in, or 60% across the different studies with no safety concerns in more than 40 studies using it in different ways. It's been shown to be highly acceptable. And as I've said, it has potential for use in terms of multi-purpose prevention and also contraception. 
So let's think about the future. And I think one of the things we should all consider always is what can we do to try and shape the future to become a better future? So I think from my perspective, advocacy is needed in three main areas. And the one area is inclusion. And I think this is crucially important. Uh, the other area is access. And I think the third area is really to think about uh, heavily treatment experienced people who have no treatment options. So if we think about how to include, um, as I've said to you, um, we've got to move from, from lip service and there's incredible work being done already um, in, in terms of trying to address ways of, 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 of including women in trials. Um, and um, I think that the ethos here is really about protecting women through research rather than from research and moving the monofocus for, from women as vessels uh, to the health of, you know, thinking only of the health of the unborn child to considering maternal health. And we've already heard from Elaine how important that is um, in terms of uh, the, the weight outcomes that we've just spoken about. So how do we deliver this? Well, it's really important to complete the uh, reproductive toxicology studies much earlier and the teratogenicity studies to allow women who become pregnant in trials to have the choice as to whether they want to stay on uh, the, dr the drugs or not unless there's a reason not to, and to bring forward the pregnancy PK safety for all new drugs, because currently uh, the median time from uh, development of a drug and license of a drug is six years before we get the first data, the first pharmacokinetic data for pregnancy, and eight years for, bre for breastfeeding. And this is truly shocking. It's got to change. Um, additionally, where drugs are being uh, identified as of, of, of critical public health importance, we need to do better than that and do dedicated pregnancy safety studies during phase three or very early post-approval. It's really important, I don't know what's just happened there, that's very odd, um, that we get access everywhere to these compounds. And also bear in mind that when we start moving into the phases of potentially self-administered drugs. And I think that, you know, the, the hope for cabotegravir is it may actually be something that can be self-administered. The more complex our devices are, the harder it is to actually extrapolate these into resource-deprived settings uh, because we're going to price things beyond what people can ever uh, pay for. For highly treatment experienced people, the question that I would ask everybody is, is it time now to abandon the functional monotherapy 14 days? What does it actually provide? But if we think about people who are then subjected to uh, monotherapy, functional monotherapy, um, one does seriously wonder about this. And it's also important that we ensure that uh, entry criteria are standardized, which allows us to actually consider the trials in a much more uh, thought out way. So uh, with four seconds to go, um, I'm going to move into the uh, Q&A. So thank you so much for listening. trying to get the questions up here. These are still questions from last time. So let's see. Um, okay, so I'm gonna come sit next. Here we go. So thank you for that tour de force. It was fantastic as always. And we have, 
Somebody asking, is it commercially available resistance testing keeping pace with the availability of new agents? For example, severe. Yeah, I think it's a really important point because I think that what we tend to sequence often doesn't actually include uh, novel agents. And I think this is really important that this happens because it's another way in which uh, inequities can creep in because if the standard testing isn't available to actually evaluate outcomes in, in heavily treatment experienced people, um, and we don't allow technologies to keep pace, um, then we're not going to be able to offer people the same service that we would offer somebody who wasn't heavily treatment experiences. And I think I thank this audience member because this is an area of inequity that I hadn't actually considered, um, but it is an area of inequity. So is there a reason or clinical setting where you would choose to do cab rel every four rather than every eight weeks? Yeah, so um, I think this is a really difficult question because the, I think to some extent, my answer to this is that the best is sometimes the enemy of the good. And if you think about it, we're talking about very, very small numbers of, of uh, of confirmed biological failure that have actually happened during these trials. And I think that what I would say is that we know a lot more now about the predictive factors that make confirmed biological failure more likely. And there already has been a multivariate analysis which identified three factors which are identifiable at baseline, which significantly reduce the likelihood of, of confirmed virological failure occurring. And these are rupivirine resistance associated mutations at baseline. Um, this is also the A6 or A1 subtype and BMI to a lesser extent. Um, and then in the, in this multivariate analysis that's been published based on the week 48 data, uh, the rupivirine drug level was also important, but this is in some ways almost a surrogate or a proxy for, for, for BMIs kind of, it's quite, quite related. But as I've said, um, there is another multivariate analysis that has been, well, there's several actually that have just been done, um, taking into account the data beyond week 48. And taking into account those people that actually switched from four week, four weekly to eight weekly uh, in the Atlas 2M study. Um, and I am actually an author on this abstract and I've, I've seen the data. So I can tell you that it's forthcoming this year and it will give, shed some further light on predicting. And so far, there's no evidence that Q4 and that, that, that actually whether you give the drug Q4 versus Q8 is an important factor or is a factor at all in, in, in this decision. So I think that clinics are going to find it extremely difficult to do this monthly. It's difficult enough to do it two monthly. It's a huge paradigm shift in what we provide. So I would say based on the very small numbers, which are to some extent reduced by using the predictive algorithm, I think that two monthly is okay. And that's what I'm happy to do that as per the license in Europe. Very long answer, but it is a quite a loaded question. <laughs> so are there any efforts to study cab or in unsuppressed people with HIV? 
Yeah, so there is a, a study called the Latitude Study. It's an ACTG study. Um, and the number of it has escaped me, but it's called the Latitude Study. And this was for people who had viral loads greater than 200, I think, or even maybe greater than 1,000. And what they were trying to do and what I think that they are still trying to do is to incentivize people and get them undetectable for six months and then switch them. So as far as I know, I know the study started quite a long time ago and it still hasn't reported. And what I've heard is they've had a lot of difficulty actually getting people undetectable, even incentivized. So this is the trial that was actually going to answer those questions. This was going to give us the answer about how to manage the situation, because right now we only have data for people who have been absolutely perfect and have gone into the study with perfect adherence and have had all of their injections within a week um, and have had no problems at all. So we don't really know the answer to this. We are getting a bit more real-world data um, from the customize and the carousel, the feasibility trials, the implementation science trials, but these were not powered around efficacy. So, you know, they're small studies of around 100 people. Certainly the customize was small. So we'll get a little bit of data and there'll be real world case series, but we still don't know about how to use this in the, the very population that we most want to use it. Very hard to study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they're asking if you could speak more to the BMI question. Are there um, dosing okay. adjustments we can make for okay. larger patients? Okay, so... There was a really elegant analysis done, uh, presented at EX last year by Emily Elliott, and uh, she's from Vive Healthcare. And what they did is they analyzed um, the outcomes, the efficacy outcomes by BMI greater than 30. And they found absolutely no differences in outcome by BMI alone. So if you have someone who, who is not an A6A1 subtype with no ruperverine associated mutations, and they are greater than 30, there's no reason that they should not succeed on treatment. So BMI alone is not considered to be a factor. You need to have two or more of the factors that I've mentioned uh, for it to be significant. So I would not be concerned about someone with a high BMI in the absence of any other predictive factors. Okay. Um, And there, um, several people are asking um, whether you're, what are your thoughts on the focus on the seven resistance cases of in, in PrEP. 08, in yeah. 083 and yeah. PrEP, um, yeah. noting that in Nadia, they don't discuss mm-hmm. the seven resistance cases in the, with a much smaller N? So I think, to be honest with you, I find it completely incomprehensible, the, the seven cases because they had adequate levels, they had the treatment at the right time. I don't understand how this has happened. And I don't think anybody, you know, I, I mean, maybe, maybe someone in the audience or someone in the faculty understands, but I, for one, don't understand. Um, and, you know, what I, what I keep thinking is that we need some sort of predictive algorithm to try and understand what the commonalities are for these people in the same way that this has been done for the treatment program. But I guess there are many, many more other factors that you never know about, like concomitant STIs, you know, various other things that, that could have potentially facilitated this. But I really, 
I have to say I'm completely stumped. I have absolutely no insight to offer you whatsoever. But I think it's really concerning that when people have taken the treatment perfectly with perfect levels, they've somehow managed uh, for, for it not to work. But I think Elaine's points around that these are very small numbers and we mustn't forget how helpful it has been and that it's superior to what we have right now. And particularly for women, an 89% uh, you know, benefit is, is a huge benefit. So just to continue around the same topic is whether um, you have any thoughts about using HIV RNA testing um, to detect three monthly every three monthly for patients on prep. Yeah. I mean, I think that clearly the earlier we detect it, the better. Um, And, you know, there have also been suggestions for treatment that, you know, doing it more than six monthly is, is a good idea um, the British HIV guidelines for treatment, we've said that we should be doing it monthly um, initially, you know, while we are still working out how to do this. So I think the, the faster, the more often we test, the better in terms of, or the more likely we are to pick it up as it's incident and to, to prevent resistance. The problem is that sort of changes the whole point of what it is, which is supposed to be a more convenient, you know, less intensive therapy and it's difficult to know whether that would affect the efficacy if people had to keep coming back whether they would you know become less reliable so I think it's a difficult question and I'll add that a lot of adolescent providers are doing more regular viral load testing for for treatment okay I think we have time for um, one more um, one more question Um, I think we've actually answered thoughts about awesome presentation. Hi. So someone is asking, do we routinely screen? I think I just lost it. First for A6A1 subtype prior to cab use and how? So, well, we basically, what I can say in the UK is we, when we first see somebody, we will certainly do a genotype and try and understand, you know, what what they have at baseline in terms of any baseline resistance. And we would also get a, a subtype readout at that time. So, and I guess it's, if someone was going to, let's say someone was diagnosed in 2010 and by the time they started treatment, for some reason it was 2015, we would do it again. Um, obviously, the, the subtype wouldn't change, but we'd certainly look at resistance again. So we would tend to have that data. But I recognize that if someone comes from a different clinic uh, or a different country, you may not be in receipt of that data. So you may be in a situation where you don't have that baseline factor. So if let's say you, I mean, A6 and A1 are prevalent in, in certain countries. It's predominantly in Russia and then in some African countries. Um, so Russia is really the most, most likely to find the A6 subtype and A6 was the worst of all of them. So I think if you didn't know the subtype, but you had a normal BMI and no preverine associated mutations, then you'd have one factor if, at worst if you did have the A6A1. So you would still be able to prescribe it. It doesn't mean if you don't know that, that you can't use it. So even without knowing that, if you don't have other factors that were, are predictive, you could still use it. Okay. Well, um, I think we have to let people go up to lunch now. 
Thank you for that. Thank you for the questions, everybody. And uh, we can head out and pick up your lunches. <laughs>